Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 1, Chapter 13 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 1, read by Jeff Brightman. Chapter 13 A Bargain Edith and Emer were staying in Fiona's house. She had asked that they sleep with her after her son's death. Fiona had quickly changed. The light of her former gaiety snuffed out. When we came to the island, she went off with Marcus to mourn with him. As Edith scratched letters into the wax, Ema rose from her nap in the corner. She rubbed her head and looked around the shadowy room. Is Brian outside? she asked. Edith looked up at me with pleading eyes. I rose and sat on the mattress next to Ema and took her hand. You have forgotten. Our poor Brian died. Two weeks ago. Emer's look was disbelieving. You're wrong. I'm sorry, my child. Not Brian. Not the bees. The bees. I dreamt it. It was a dream. I pulled her to me. She was trembling and weak, not crying or struggling, but confused and lost. I must have dreamt it. He is with God, curled in my arms, a shaking, delicate ball. Why did God take him? He is in heaven, and it is a joyous place, full of shells and the sea and wonderful things. Remember, he received baptism at Easter. He is there. Emer took hold of my robe and kneaded the wool in her tiny hands. But he is taken. Why should God hurt us so if he is happy? Is it a sin for me to suffer? But I can't be happy. Why should I be happy? He is lost somewhere. I didn't reply quickly, trying to think trying to anticipate what she would say. We must suffer. Heaven is all the sweeter for us because we suffer here. Emer sobbed in deep confusion. When she finished shaking, she wiped her face on my shoulder and sat up. Then I will not love. And I do not love God. God is wrong to hurt us. I hate God forever. I stroked her downy hair. The room seemed very dark, as if there were only a small light shining just on us. All else receded into shadow. The world needs your love, Emer, because... We suffer. 
You may be angry with God, and I know it is wrong that you suffer. It is wrong. I won't defend God. I can't. I don't know his way or reasons, but you must love. And you will love better because you know suffering. Only those who suffer and grieve know how precious love is and how precious our brief time is. Your mother needs your love. Edith does. We suffer with you and we love you and need you. Emer lowered her eyelids and thought, making a small noise to speak several times, but no words came. Then she asked, Do you need my love, Uncle Tach? I didn't know where this came from. Calling me uncle? Her wet green eyes were penetrating. Yes, Emer, I do. Very much. And I do too, Edith said. Emer ran to Edith and kissed her. I should go to Mama. She may need me. She's sleeping at home, Edith said. But just then, Gwyn came to the door. She stood with clear eyes, her face pink, looking at them as if seeing them for the first time in months or years. My girls, my girls, she said. Emer ran to her, and Gwyn pulled her into her arms and lifted her up. Emer turned her head towards Edith. Come, we must help Mama. Edith put down her pen and joined them. The three of them went outside. I went to the table and closed the lesson book. Morgan had been sewing by the window. We were alone in the house now. She sewed with the fishbone needle rapidly, making fine, tiny stitches. Oh! she started. She had pricked herself. I knelt beside her and held down on the puncture with my thumb. I only don't want to get a stain on the fabric. Emer loves this pale yellow. We stayed in this position for a while. Her finger felt so strong in my grasp. I could study her fine features. There was a little grey in her black hair. This might be the only time I would ever be so close to her. I was close enough to kiss her. Do you really want to be a monk? She asked in a low voice. I said nothing and didn't move. It's just that you do seem full of love. What is love to a practical woman like yourself? She laughed, the sound like a spring bird. Am I right in thinking this first year is a time for you to make the final decision? So, she knew all that. That's right. Do you ponder it? I pulled her hand to my lips. There is nothing else for me but this vow. I closed my eyes, surprised 
at the softness of her hard-working hand. With my eyes closed, I said, I won't go into it. But I have a premonition of an early death. There is no point in my marrying, even though it sometimes seems there's little point in my vow. Perhaps there is nothing that can make me happy. I once told my sister happiness wasn't the goal. Now I know I was lying. I think you can be happy. She turned and grazed my lips with hers. I had never been kissed. It was only a touch, like the sigh of a cloud. I pulled away. I'm sorry, she said. I don't want to lead you into sin. I wrapped her hands in mine. Don't be sorry. Perhaps, perhaps, I should consider it all very carefully. Her smile back was cautious, but sweet. I hiked up to the top of the hill of Dune-E, barefoot, the sharp stones bruising my feet, a few drops of blood wetting the light dry soil. I turned my back to the monastery and sat, pulling off the white scapula and folding it beside me. It was cold through my thin tunic, and I felt my skin turning as cool as the rocks. The sun was dim. I looked at my pale hands and legs, grayish in the cloudy afternoon. I sat still and concentrated on the cold, trying to feel it with my whole being. Then I picked up the flail and struck it against my outstretched legs, which were already streaked with the red marks of days of this penance. Afterward, I went down to the beach and stood up to my thighs in the frigid water, the salt biting my wounds my arms outstretched in prayer, murmuring psalms. The cold water burned. When the bell was struck for Nonus, I joined the swarm of monks, melting into the crowd, dissolving in the common voice of the chant. I didn't notice how the abbot or anyone else reacted to this penance, which I observed every day between sext and nonus. No longer noticing how anyone looked at me, or feeling judged. I didn't carry out this activity as a punishment, not to castigate or torture myself. It was not out of a belief that I had sinned against God and deserved pain. It was only that penance was the one opportunity for relief. I was glad for the vow of silence, that I wasn't required to speak. My whole body felt like a vessel of secrets, of painful longings and sinful needs. I only wanted to need 
nothing, to cast all need out of myself in icy waters and starved sleep, to burn up all need like burning a wasteland of weeds to clear new ground. One day, as I sat reading in the house, someone set a book in front of me. Marcus squeezed my elbow. Do you remember this? he whispered. I opened the book. It was a favorite from our youth, something forbidden, a comical verse. In a flash, I remembered sneaking off with Marcus to read it when we were boys. I smiled as I turned the pages. Marcus kissed my cheek. Try it, he whispered in my ear. When I had the boys the next day, I held up the slim volume. I have something new. It is something only very advanced boys get to read. I have decided to reward you with this, if you are good. The boys looked curious. I glanced at Taryn, who sat straight and attentive in his chair. It is called the Hesperica Famina, the Western Orations, about hungry scholars. It is about boys like you in a Latin contest, showing off their skill. I opened the book to show them. Taryn, why don't you try reading this? Taryn cleared his throat. Nam equalae plasmamine mellifluam populas osonici faminis per guttural sparginem? The boys giggled at the flamboyant language. I translated. Do you produce with equal skill? A mellifluous flow of Arsonian speech from your vocal cords? They laughed. Taryn continued. Uelet innumera apium concaeus discurant examina apiastris minelkilentaque sorbilant flienta Eliureis, ai solidos schemicant rostris fauos. Taryn broke into a smile. Can you translate? I asked. Taryn blushed. As when countless swarms of bees run to and fro, Rafe raised his hand, in their hollow hives, He turned to Oswald, who said, And swallow floods of honey. Taryn raised his hand and finished. And make their solid combs with their proboscises. The boys laughed again, repeating proboscis to each other. They spent an hour puzzling over the parodic verses. When the bell was struck, Rafe said, Can we do this again tomorrow? 
Only if you continue to be good. The boys thanked me and started to leave. I caught Terran's eye and motioned for him to sit back down. Terran sat, looking nervous. I was better today, he said. I didn't smile. I think you are old enough that I can ask you, why? Why do you incur my wrath? Are you completely a wretched sinner who cannot control himself? Taryn flushed. I am not wretched. Or I am. I am wretched. I want you to expel me. Send me home. Isn't it the only thing to be done with me? I sighed and shook my head. You must stay until you prove yourself. I want to prove myself. I want to prove my ability to ride and to fight and to lead men and solve problems. Why can't I prove myself in that way? In time, you will. And in time, you will go home. I think sooner rather than later. You can prove yourself by showing you can withstand a situation that isn't your choice. Be a man and bear up to it. There is manhood in facing unbearable situations. Taran rested his chin in his hand. If I'm good, can we look at this book every day until I may leave? I extended my hand, and we shook on it. We continued with Hesperica Famina. One day, I brought another book, The Lorica of Laidsen. It begins with a long prayer of protection, I explained. Tege spinam et costas cum artibus, turga dorsum et neruos cum osibus, tega cutem sanguinem cum renibus, catacrunes nates cum femoribus. I had them translating on their own, scratching into their tablets, until they had puzzled out Protect my spine and ribs with their joints, back, ridge, and sinews with their bones. Protect my skin, blood, and kidneys, the region of the buttocks, nates, and thighs. They laughed as the list of body parts went on for pages. On Thursday, in the evening before Compline, Jeremiah came into the house and tapped my shoulder. We went straight to the abbot's house. I knelt before the abbot's desk. Brazal smiled. Kanochtoch, I want to compliment you on your teaching. I know you have improved greatly. Thank you, father. With God's help. Brazal's smile broadened. Brother Neherd is getting quite old, and his duties burden him. 
Now that you have found your way in teaching, you will teach Fridays as well, and relieve our dear brother. You are up to the task. It did not seem like a question. I knew there was no refusing. There would be no more Fridays spent with Edith and Morgan. Yes, father. Thank you. Brissal patted my shoulder, and I left. Outside, I looked across the sound at the dark, quiet island, the water such a slender obstacle. A boat could easily cross, but there was no boat to cross circumstance and rule. But... It was my own pure selfishness that longed for such a boat. I was so far away. I thought of Edith, then Deirdre, and my throat hurt. As I went into the house and glanced at the library books, I remembered I had left behind the lesson book on the other island the children's psalter. I decided to let it stay there. I went to Luke's cell and knocked. I had finally decided to unburden myself to him. That was what I was supposed to do. There was no answer and I went into the dark cell. Luke, are you asleep? The white cat brushed by my ankles and slipped outside. I closed the door, the room black. I fell to my knees. Unable to hold back any more, tears overwhelmed me. Luke, I must know. There was something I wanted. To create a book that would stand as the word of God forever as we are a religion of the book. You've tried to show me there is more, but I wanted this, and I must know. Is it pride? Is it the sin of pride? Is it only pride that drives me? Only pride? I put my hands over my wet face. There was no answer. I reached out for the monk in the bed and felt a cold hand. I found the lamp and lit the wick from an ember of the banked fire. Luke's head was turned strangely, his sightless eyes open and staring, unmoving, his mouth open. I put my hand on the monk's forehead. It was cold. He had been dead for some hours. After Luke was buried, as the monks came out of the church, Gormgal stopped and stared at Luke's cell on the little hillock. See the light, he said softly, and the monks stopped and nodded. I looked, but saw no light, just a cloud above 
that glowed with the moon behind it. It didn't surprise me that I didn't see the light the others saw, because I knew I wasn't blessed. In the refractory, I noticed kind glances from Gormgal, Reuben, and others. After the meal, as we walked out, I felt a hand on my back. Brisal was comforting me. I had thought myself lonely before Luke died, not appreciating what Luke meant to me. It was this unexpected sympathy that revealed the keen loss. It was the sympathy that opened my grief. Brisal beckoned to me and we went to the abbot's office. I knelt and the abbot motioned for me to sit on the low stool. Brizal said, I wondered who would be a good Amchara for you. The ledger was open on Brizal's desk. It was the chronicle of the monastery, and Luke's death was the last line recorded. I don't know. I don't feel the need of one right now. We all need to unburden ourselves. I couldn't imagine confessing to anyone. In time, I will find another. Perhaps when Brother Leo returns? I felt myself flush at the thought of confessing to the blustery teacher. I will find someone in a while. Rizal's face was sympathetic as he leaned forward with his hands clasped on the desk, his head tilted, inviting me to speak. I had never seen this softness from Brizal. It was too painful. I thanked him and faltered out of the room. It was a dark, heavy September. Time to plow and sow the field on the west side of the island with winter wheat. We went out in the dawn, after prime. I had asked to help, and I joined Kayla and Oswald, who trained the four red oxen. The yoke and plow were under a shed by the oxen field, which was separated by a fence from the cow field where the calves trotted beside their mothers. In the oxen field, the four castrated bulls lived apart, their lives dedicated to pulling the plow and hauling trees. As the men pulled out the implements, the oxen lifted their heads and stared. Oswald whistled and patted his chest. The oxen lumbered over. Back! Gee! Back! Oswald guided them into the harness. The oxen understood. Gee was right, and Haw was left. Kayla tapped them with the goad on the side they were supposed to turn toward. I held the plow by its two wide-set handles, taking long strides with the quick, jerky motion of the oxen as the dirt from the mold board sprayed beside me. I thought of water, of the sea, and how easy the boat ride seemed to the other island. 
The devil made it seem easy. The devil makes an easy path to sin, but under the rolling, buoyant waves, there is a tide that pulls one down. I thought of this, and beneath my feet dark earth appeared like a thick line of ink on the cream-colored soil. Earth was simple. God's work was hard. My spread arms were tense, holding the bouncing, jumping plow. I felt it in my shoulders and back most, but also my forearms and my clenched hands. Hard work led to the fruits of abundance, and the ease of the devil's path led to the nettles and bracken of sin that tore one's soul with remorse. We came to the end of the furlong. Kayla tapped the goad. Gee! Gee! Oswald commanded. The plow leaned to the right. I leaned and lifted it slightly. We turned oxen and plow together, each doing a separate job in unison. Nothing existed but the pull of the oxen, the weight of the plow, the wavy line in the soil, my body shifting, Oswald's voice commanding them to turn, the goad rising and falling. The sun came out from the clouds, and it was suddenly bright and warm. Sweat trickled down my forehead. In the cold dark of the morning, the devil felt very present to me. But now, as I shook my head away from a cloud of midges, unable to let go of the plow for a moment, the work absorbed me. How simple it was to work, to keep going forward in this dark line of earth, following the team, each part doing its duty. We three men and the oxen were connected, but unique in our own challenges. The oxen to strain together pulling, the plowman holding the plow, the slave to tap and goad them straight on, the leader to voice commands and encouragement, and to set the pace in front. This was everywhere, every spring and autumn. No one lived without this. It was a common, universal activity I had done all my life. To avoid such work seemed to break the bonds I felt with men who everywhere did this, and break the bonds with the good work that supported life. I forgot my thoughts because pain consumed me. My shoulders ached, my hands burned, my knees felt like pins were driven into them. The sun parched my throat, and flies teased my skin. There was nothing in life but this work and this pain. There were no thoughts, no philosophy, and no regret. We plowed through tears and stopped when a quarter acre was turned. Oswald put his arm around my heaving shoulders. We'll trade places now? I took the goad from Kayla 
and stepped around to the right side of the team. Walking without the plow, my legs felt spongy and light. I could look up now. We were on the west side of the island, on the other side of Dune E, and the monastery was out of sight. Some brothers were milking in the cow field. The season of milk was passing to the season of meat. Calves butted their heads against the milkmen. I was still breathless and saw these things without thought, just saw, and felt love slowly displace the hot pain that gradually seeped out from my joints and muscles. It was not a love directed at anyone or anything, but something that spread in me, as the sun spreads on hills when the clouds burn off. It was something I felt without words and without naming it, a physical presence. We worked past Sext and Nonus to finish the acre. I took another turn at the plow and then Oswald again. The second time at the plow, the pain bathed me, held me like a blanket, and I immersed myself, pushing into the earth and pushing into the pain, the earth always giving way, and the pain giving and rolling back like a wave. Again, there was nothing but dirt, heat, and pain, and it spoke my name like a mother singing a lullaby. And then we were done, and the end seemed sudden after a lifetime of plowing. I took a staggering step back. Water, Kayla said. We led the yoked oxen to the trough and pulled off the yoke. The oxen stamped and flung their heads to the water. Kayla fetched a pail of water from the well and we drank lustily. The sun was low, and I wanted to wash myself before vespers. I helped put away the plow and yoke, and we went to the pond at the south end of Dune E. I took off my scapula and tunic and waded into the water in my braids. It was cold, but not nearly so cold as the sea water I was used to. I stood up to my thighs and splashed myself all over. Kayla joined me, stripping nude. Kayla swam and splashed like a merry boy, and then floated on his back. You swim well, I said. Kayla stood up to his waist. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the water was warm? Really hot? The last time I was in water like this was almost a year ago when my sister and I cleaned the hides after slaughter. It's hard to believe it's only been a year. The water darkened around us as the sun sank. The bell was struck for vespers. I threw on my scapula and hurried ahead of Kayla and joined the throng. 
I still felt weak and light from the day's effort, floating on the waves of the chant. As we came from the church, I looked up at Luke's cell. The golden moon was setting over it, and light gleamed along the edge of the roof. The light brightly washed over the thatch until the whole roof glowed. Perhaps I did see the light. Surely this was the blessed light. Someone stopped beside me. I turned to Reuben. Our eyes met. What did my face reveal? I recalled Luke speaking of this. How wonderful it was to see faces and their emotions. Reuben had a sweet, sad smile on his face, his eyes glittering and knowing. My heart seemed to fill my chest with a slow beat. I had never loved my brothers. I saw my pride like a flail that had whipped me on. For some time, I had been thinking much of the devil instead of God. At that moment, I felt there was no devil but pride, because pride had kept me from love. Several monks gathered around us, looking at that light on Luke's cell, and all their faces were beautiful. To be continued. If you enjoy Continuous Stream, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. For other ways to support the show, please see the show notes or visit www.continuousstream.com. Thanks for listening.